Well, a book's conclusion is really important. We know many of the first lines from the classics. Call me Ishmael. I am an invisible man. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. We, we, we know the beginnings of many of the classic books. But what about the final lines? How many of those could we name? If we, if we gave the, the hundred greatest novels ever written, how many of those last lines would we know? You may pick this one up. The creatures outside looked from pig to man and from man to pig and from pig to man again, but it was already impossible to say which was which. Another one is, after all, tomorrow is another day. Another quote is, God's in his heaven, all's right with the world, whispered Anne softly. I suppose that we're not as familiar with the ending lines as we are with the beginning, partly because it's a whole lot easier to start reading a book than it is to actually finish one. There have been books where halfway through uh, reading, I've wanted to quit. I, I've said, this is not a good book. It's not enjoyable to read. I don't enjoy doing it. I don't want to do it anymore. But I've already invested time, and I want to see how this finishes. So there are times I just trudge through the book and just finish because, well, that's just what I need to do. I want to know the ending. But suppose for a minute that you enjoy a book. Would you ever consider quitting before you reach the end? Often we find closure in the end of a book or the end of a letter or if you don't read, and you ought to, but if you don't, maybe the end of the movie. No one's cutting the movie off with 10 or 15 minutes left to go in a good movie. That would be crazy. Often we find closure. We, we find all of the, the letter or the book or the movie is pointing to this one scene that sticks with us. The entirety of what we've read leads to this point. Well, we've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter to the church in Corinth, for quite some time. And you'll find that the conclusions that we see, that what we just read now, in a large part mirrors what we read at the beginning of this book. It kind of bookends this letter. It's important for Paul's message to get through. He wants to end on a high note reminding the church that they have a task to complete but also that he loves them. Paul reminds them that he is for them, that he wants them to succeed. It's been a journey. It's been a fun journey so far as we've dived in or dove into this book. And so uh, as we finish this book up, I, I pray that you've been able to see the point that Paul is making, which we'll conclude this morning on. The first thing that we see is found in verses 13 through 18. Paul is telling the church to be good examples. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Paul tells the church to be watchful. Be on alert. You say, well, on alert for what? Could, could be one of a few different explanations to this. First, he, he could have been saying, be on alert for the second coming of Christ. Be on alert for that. The early church was facing terrible persecution. And, and we often hear this and we often say this, that, that we believe Jesus is coming soon. But the folks in the church in Corinth believe the exact same thing. Persecution is raining down on them. Suffering is coming. Uh, they're, they're hated in society. They're looked at as the lowest of the low. There, there are people who, who believe that the early Christians were, were drinking blood and and eating flesh, literally. 
So you can imagine what their neighbors thought of them. A bunch of cannibals who are worshiping a dead man. So they were facing all sorts of difficulties and persecutions. So they desperately wanted Jesus to return. And so Paul may have been saying, look to that day. Whenever that may be, look to that day. Give yourself encouragement. They wanted the suffering to be over. We know that Jesus did not return in their lifetime, and he hasn't uh, come for us yet. So why be watchful for the return of Christ? Because it gives us hope, and it keeps us ready for the spiritual battles that come our way, knowing that we may lose the battle, but we will win the war. It's already been determined. Another possibility is Paul was saying, be alert for false teachers. We know by reading throughout the New Testament that, that the problem of false teaching was prevalent. It was everywhere, as it is today. And so be on alert for that, that wolves will come into your church and try to stir things up. They'll look like sheep. They'll come in and cause problems in the flock and lead people astray. Be watchful for them. And we see that this job is often given to the elders, but it's given to the church as a whole. The elders stand guard, but the church is still fighting that battle as well against false teaching. A third possibility is that Paul was talking about the lives, the individuals in the church. Be watchful over one another so no one is ensnared in sin. Be watchful, be vigilant. It means that we all must be active in the lives of one another so that we can watch out for sin that infests our lives. This means as members of a church, we must be transparent with one another. No more hiding your needs. No more being private people. No more doing things on our own. This is culture speaking, not the church. In the Bible, it doesn't give us this option. The Bible says we huddle closer. We lean on each other even more. So whether Paul was meaning watching for Jesus, watching for false teachers, or watching for the sin in our lives, or maybe all three at the same time, the message is the same. The church cannot be lazy when it comes to our faith. We must be vigilant. And Paul also says that the church must stand firm in the faith. This would fit right in with all the three possibilities that we just talked about. The church has to persevere. The image that I think Paul is giving, standing firm in your faith, is one of a soldier ready for battle. Now, if you can think of war movies, uh, not modern war movies, but movies that were set in, 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 in days past and, and, and long ago where you would often see, I think of a Civil War movie or an ancient war movie where you'd have the guys lining up, the soldiers lining up side by side and deep, and they're ready to charge at one another. And on the other side of the field, the, same, the opposing army is doing the same. Now, those guys on the front line know that they're probably not going to survive this. If they can somehow get through that first uh, attack, there's still guys waiting to come after them. And yet their job is to stand firm. Know that they've been commissioned and called to accomplish something and that they have to do their job. Because if everybody ran away, the war would be lost. And so those soldiers stand waiting for their orders. They're not falling, they're not running away, they're standing firm. Well, the next thing that Paul tells the church to do is to act like men. Now, there are some who would make this a sermon about manliness, and I don't think that's what Paul was talking about. I don't think Paul was talking about dudes who look like lumberjacks, as many of us would want to look like a lumberjack. That's not what Paul was referencing. 
Paul's not referencing guys with big muscles and, 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 and tank tops and, you know, beating people up. And that, that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not saying that we need to do this. Why? How do we know that? Because there were women in the church who were reading this letter too. Now that may fit with our common culture today, but it certainly didn't fit then. He's saying, act like men. What Paul has in mind is similar to what he said in chapter 13, verse 11. He says this, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. This church doesn't have a leader. They're kind of waffling. They're going back and forth. There are all sorts of fights that are happening. There are some theological issues that they're working through. It's one of the main reasons Paul wrote this letter, because they had been writing to him, asking him for help, saying, hey, we've got all these problems. Come fix this. The church is lost, and Paul is telling them to cling to the one thing that matters above all else. It's the gospel. That's what unifies you. That's what brings you together. That's the glue that holds you together amidst all your differences. Paul's not saying, act like macho men, he's saying, act like grown-ups. Act like spiritual, mature people. Years ago, I was interviewed um, to be the senior lead pastor at a church. And so this was my first gig. I had just finished as being a youth pastor, and, and I was trying to find a position, and, and so I had interviewed at a couple different churches, sent many resumes out, and a church called back, and I did multiple rounds of interviews, and um, they called and said, hey, you're the guy that we're looking at. You're the only one. And I said, fine. So we booked the flight, and um, we were going to fly down there and do all of the things that pastors have to do in order to try to win a job over, you know, try to be nice to people, smile, tell people you're not going to change anything, um, tell people you'll give them everybody what they want, and hopefully they'll hire you for the job. And so as we were preparing to do that, I made a couple phone calls. And I called, uh, the second phone call that I had was with the man who was the interim pastor at the church. Pleasantries, uh, and then after that, uh, I asked him, I said, hey, what, what are some problems that you've faced in the church? And uh, he said, oh, we had, we had a, uh, an issue in our last business meeting that almost ended in a brawl. I'm thinking, this is going to be good. Um, and, and so my mind is racing at this point. I'm thinking that, man, someone must have denied the Trinity, right? I mean, like, if you start denying that, I may start throwing things at you, but, but, but I was thinking something deep theological issues. Or maybe people were coming in and there was kind of a coup and, and there was people who wanted to sell the building or, or merge with another. Something major that would really change the entire life and the DNA of that church. And so he spoke and he said, well, in our last business meeting, a proposal was made to take the pews away from the choir loft and replace them with chairs. And I said, and, and what happened next? He said, well, well, that's it. He said, people flipped out about that. He, he said that there was uh, uh, so many people that were angry about that discussion. They weren't getting rid of the choir. They weren't getting rid of the choir loft. They were literally changing what the choir sits on in order to have the stage be more, um, uh, to be ready to do other things. And people in the church, and this church was made up of mostly older members, almost got into a brawl. That was the interim pastor's words. 
Immediately after getting off the phone, I called up the chairman of the search committee and said, I am removing my name from consideration for, for this congregation because I am not ready to deal with this. I said, I have neither the patience nor the desire to pastor a church that is fighting over what seats we have. I couldn't go to a church because this illustrates a bigger problem in the church, that it wasn't just about the choir pews, it wasn't just about the choir, it was a bigger issue that that was emblematic of other problems that were happening in that church, and I said, I am not the right guy for you. I said that I need to go to a church where their believers are mature, especially the older members are mature beyond fighting against that. When Paul says that the church must act like men, he is in essence saying, grow up. If you're an older believer, act like it. When you were a child, you acted like a child. When you were a spiritual child, you acted like one. You made all sorts of mistakes, but now that you're older and you've had time and experience in the faith and you've been trained and you've been taught, you've read your word, you've done all of those things that you should do, start acting like it. And the church in Corinth had lots of people who were not acting like it. They had been Christians for years now. This, this church, this letter was written about two decades after the death of Christ. So they had some time. And yet some of the older members were not acting mature. Finally, Paul says in verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. Everything that we do as a church is touched by this concept, isn't it? Why do we do anything? Why, why, why do we sacrifice for one another? Why do we go out and work in the world in order to give part of our money away? Why do we come every Sunday and, and sing together and be with people that sometimes we just don't like? Why? It's because love conquers those things. Everything that we do together as a church congregation is done because of love. Why do we spend time with people in the community? Why do we give our money so that we can feed people in the community? It's done because we love them enough that we want them to know Christ. Because God first loved us. Paul says, let, every, or let all that you do be done in love. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 8? Paul says this, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, yet he does not know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. If you remember back this far, the church was having disagreements over whether food, certain foods were okay to eat. And if you remember, the, the, the church uh, had people in the church who were bringing in meat that had been offered to idols. So uh, the, these, these people would, would slaughter their animals, they would chop up the animal, and they would offer this meat um, in pagan temples, and the leftover would go outside the temple to be sold for just the community to eat. And, and so there were people in the church who were saying, I can't do that. That meat is filthy. It's spiritually dirty. It would be sinful for me to eat that. While another person in the church was munching on steak. And they were saying, that's not okay. And, and so they're saying, what do we do about this? Now, Paul could have taken both sides. He could have said, eh, in Christ, everything is okay. Everything is clean. Or he could have said, hey, you know what? The Old Testament still makes some sense. We're going to stay away from those things. We're not going to eat unclean animals. But Paul didn't do that. This wasn't a primary issue. This wasn't an issue about the Trinity or the exclusivity of Christ. They were dividing over what is acceptable practice in the church. And he doesn't say one side over the other. This is what he says. 
Do not let your freedom in Christ cause someone to stumble. Out of love, stop eating those things that trouble your brother and sister. What he's saying is, is that your love for each other should trump your freedom to eat what you want. Again, everything that we do as believers is colored by love for one another. And this connects directly to chapter 16, verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, I don't expect the world to listen to this. I certainly don't expect them to believe this and to act like this, but I do expect that of Christians. Can you imagine, can you imagine for a moment what our churches across the world would look like if we just lived by this statement? That everything that we do is done in love? Do you know what that would mean for us, though? It would mean that we're making sacrifices. It would mean that we're giving up time to be with people. It would mean that we would be opening our homes to people. It would mean that we'd be giving money to causes that, that we may not completely and fully agree with. No, but we're doing it because we love those around us. Let all that we do be done in love. In certain circles right now, in Christianity, there are some who are clinging um, to their desire to be right more than they are to be loving. Now, I'm saying you need to be both. I, I think Christianity often is not about extremes. It's often a life of balance uh, where, where there is, is love, but there's also uh, there's theological training and wanting to be correct. But you, you need to balance. If you're all love and no truth, well, what good is that? And if you're all truth with no love, that's not good either. So the Christian faith is, and the Christian life is a life of balance, finding that, that balance where you're loving and you're truthful at the same time. But there are people now who are pushing their agenda and focusing on being right rather than listening and loving others. It's a stain. It's dividing churches. It's dividing our denomination. And I'd say this, are you doing everything in love? Building on this idea of, of love guiding all that we do, Paul names some individuals, but in this passage, he gives the church these patterns to follow. Stephanus and his household uh, were the ones who were baptized in chapter 1. Do you remember that? Paul said, I'm glad that I didn't baptize any of you except Stephanus. They were likely the first converts to the faith in the church in Corinth. They modeled service to other believers. They were living out the statement that Paul has been making throughout these, these chapters saying, live like these people as long as they follow after Christ. And he says, Stephanus is one to emulate. Paul tells the church to be subject to them and every fellow worker and laborer. Now, by these words, uh, Paul likely refers to those who are like him, working in ministry. The leaders in the church, those who are the elders, whether that meant at that point the, the, the formal elders of the church or just the elders spiritually in the church. Paul's saying that the church needs to be subject to one another. They need to follow those who are faithfully following Christ. Listen to those who are more mature in the faith. That's the first thing. Then in verses 17 and 18, Paul gives the second thing for churches to do. Give recognition to faithful saints. Paul rejoiced at the arrival of Stephanus and uh, uh, Fortunatus and Achaeus. These last two men may have been slaves or bondservants to Stephanus. These three likely brought the letter that came from the church in Corinth. So you're seeing all, this thing, all these things working together that, that caused Paul to write this letter. And so he models for the Corinthians and for us what we should 
that we should be subject to one another inside the church. And that we should give recognition to faithful saints inside the church. Now, when we see things like this again, just like the entirety of chapter 16, almost all of chapter 16 could just be run through really quickly in our reading. We could just pass by most of this stuff because it just seems like someone's just concluding a letter. But what Paul is doing, like we saw last week, Paul is modeling for us how we are to approach life inside the church and how we're supposed to be more loving to one another. And you say, well, why do we need to do that? Because the world sees that. The world sees what we do and how we interact with one another. They know us by our love. And this leads us to our second point this morning. A larger vision. This is verses 19 through 21. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prissa. Together with the church in their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. We don't often write letters anymore. I cannot tell you the last time that I sat and hand wrote a letter, mostly because by the time I get to the third or fourth sentence, you can't read what I'm writing. My hand starts to hurt because I'm so used to typing. But even those who do write letters would probably not write a letter in the same fashion that Paul's writing. But including greetings like this was normal of the day. Uh, when Paul wrote this letter, Paul was in Ephesus. So he's writing to Corinth in Greece, and he's in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. The Corinthians would have received this letter from hundreds of miles away, and they would have read it inside their congregation. They, somebody would have stood up and opened the scroll or opened the envelope, and they would have taken the letter out, and they would have read it to the entire church. And they would have seen that there are churches that are praying for them. That they are not alone in the fight. Now, I don't know about you, um, but the last two years have been the hardest in ministry that I've ever faced. I've talked to a lot of older pastors who say the same thing. They say, I've never seen anything like the last two years. And it's not just COVID. It's not just people getting sick. It's not just that. It's all of the other stuff that's come with it. Masses of people leaving a church. People complaining a lot more than they have in the past. And I'm, none of you here would ever do that. Just difficulties in ministry that, that for years past we just didn't have to deal with. So maybe we just had it easy and now this is the normal way of doing ministry. And so this is just what's going to be in the future. So we just get used to it. But I can tell you this. In the last two years, I've often felt alone. I've often felt like we are the only ones that are suffering. I've I, I felt like as a pastor coming every Sunday and, and, and seeing fewer and fewer people and, and seeing the giving going down a little bit and seeing all that, I'm like, man, I'm seeing full parking lots as I drive in on the morning. What's, what's going on there? But the reality is that every church is struggling in different ways right now. I do not know one church that's doing better than they were two years ago. And so I share that with you for this reason. Similar to what the church in Corinth would have felt as persecution is coming down. They're getting a letter uh, from Paul saying, the church in Ephesus is with you. We're praying for you. They love you. They care about you. They were being persecuted as well. They were struggling as well. And so it's, it's, it's not to be twisted or to, I'm not trying to say this to be mean, but it is kind of nice to know that everybody else is struggling just as much as we are. 
that we're all in this fight together, that we're all in this battle for the last two years. No pastor knows what they're doing. No church member knows what they're doing. We're all struggling together just trying to blindly grab a hold of something and hold on to it. And I hear from other pastors that they're struggling, pastors of churches with young families in there. Uh, uh, one of my best friends pastors a church uh, with many, many young people. He said, all of our old members have left. He said, and we've even lost core members that were part of our church plant. And my heart breaks for him, but I, I feel a connection with him that I didn't have before. We're all in this together, brother. That we're all suffering and struggling together, trying to figure things out. And so the church of Corinth reads this, and they get to the final end, and they say, wow, the church in Ephesus... They're suffering too, and they're praying for us. That we're in this fight at the same time. We're on the same team. We're pushing in the same direction. That had to give the church in Corinth some comfort. This is a greeting that Paul is saying, hey, guys, the church in Ephesus is suffering too, and they send your greetings. They're praying. Paul also includes the names of Aquila and Priscilla. That, By the way, that Prissa is kind of a... a, a a slang term for Priscilla. So it's the same Aquila and Priscilla that you've seen in four New Testament books. They're, they're kind of famous. They played a huge role in the growth of the early church. They're a married couple who had been expelled from Rome. And they traveled through Corinth where they met Paul and they ministered with him. And then they went up to Ephesus where they trained Apollos. By the time the book of Romans was written, they made it all the way back to Rome. And by the time that Paul wrote his final letter, they had made it all the way back up to Ephesus. So this was a jet-setting couple that was working in ministry. They were similar to Paul. They were moving around constantly. Now I share all this because these were two missionaries who were vital to the spread of the gospel. And Paul is doing as he's done elsewhere. He's lifting them up. He, he's giving them the recognition that they deserve for the work that they've done. The selfless work in ministry that they've done. Paul said this earlier in 1 Corinthians. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And what Paul is saying here is be imitators of Aquila and Priscilla because they follow after Christ. They're giving you an example to follow. They're discipling you so that you can resemble Christ because they are more mature than you and they're pushing you along. Finally, Paul says that all the brothers send greetings. Again, by brothers, he's not saying just the men. He's saying the men and women in the church. He's similar to someone who would say, well, all of mankind. He's saying everyone in the church is sending greetings. And then Paul says something strange. Something that we really don't practice. And if you try to practice this, you're probably going to get punched. Paul says, greet each other with a holy kiss. This wasn't, looking at history, this wasn't part of the Greco-Roman culture. There's no record of that, uh, of people greeting each other in the streets with kisses. Now, if you go to Italy, you may see that, so it has evolved into part of that. But, but ultimately, this was a brand new or, or very new experience, and this was a kind of an experience that belonged to the church primarily. This wasn't some sexual kiss. This wasn't a sinful thing. This was a kiss to show true affection. So when you see someone you haven't seen in a long time, what do you do? In, in, in our culture, we go up and we put our arms out and we hug that person and we don't want to let them go. 
church that I previously pastored was a third Hispanic. And um, even though it was only a third Hispanic, that culture really dominated our church culture. Um, so from the food to the way that people addressed one another, to the way that people talked to each other, to the way that we dealt with each other's children, you'd often see an, another adult kind of disciplining, not physically, but disciplining another child because that was just the culture. It was just one big family. And one thing that you'd find in our church every single Sunday, and it could freak some people out, is that there would be kisses given. Not mouth-to-mouth kisses, that would be really weird. But it was, you'd find people who give each other a hug and embrace and then give a little smooch on the cheek or maybe just a cheek-to-cheek or something. But it was a common thing. It happened every single week. It was a sign of authentic love because you don't go up to someone and give them a kiss on the cheek. Yes, there is an example in Scripture of that happening. But you don't do that unless you really love someone. And so as I, as I came into that church and I was new to that and it was strange to me, I started to look at things a little different. I started to look at how the church was a spine for those folks. That the church was the thing that held everyone together in their lives. That, that there were divorces that happened in the church and where, what happened? The church was there to prop them up. There were tragedies in their life and the church was there to prop them up. We had issues of of immigration and people being scared that they were going to be deported and the church propped them up. Now we've all been through churches where you can walk in and immediately see that people don't like each other. We visited those churches, certainly not here, but we visited those churches. People come in, sit down, hear the sermon, sing a couple songs if they sing at all, and then they leave. And they don't talk to anybody, they don't greet anyone, there's no handshaking, there's no hug, certainly no kissing. And they leave. And Paul is saying, don't ever do that. Don't ever be without affection for your brothers and sisters in Christ. The early church was told by Paul to greet each other with affection. Doesn't have to be smooching, but at least shake some hands, give some hugs, smile, right? Show affection that you actually love the people you're sitting near. The final point that Paul has this morning is found in verses 22 through 24. Again, this is where the bookend comes. So we've seen this in chapter 1, and now we're seeing this in these verses, these closing verses. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. It's actually just more than grace and love. It's a warning that if anyone does not have love for the Lord, he is to be accursed. It's kind of a test for all of us. Do you love the Lord? Not like you love your spouse. Not like you love your favorite sports team. Not like you love your favorite food, because we use love all in the same way, don't we? I love pizza. I love college basketball. I love my wife, and I love Jesus. Well, those are four very different kinds of love. But do you love Jesus above and beyond everything else in your life? Do you love Jesus to the point where you would forsake everything else for the cause of Christ? If you do, the grace of God is with you. Paul closes his letter by saying that his love is with them in Christ. He begins chapter 1 by saying how thankful he is. And he closes in much the same way. He bookends his letter with thankfulness Uh, uh, with thankfulness, and in the middle he addresses the problems with very strong words. Again, this is kind of a pastoral example. You praise, you correct, and then you praise again. 
This is how we should operate honestly in most of our lives. If we're giving correction to our children, you don't just go and scream at them. You're doing something wrong. You say, hey, I see what you're doing, and I see how you're trying your hardest. Here's how to correct it, and here's how I'm going to encourage you in the future. He's a pastor. Now, after more than 40 sermons through 16 chapters of this book, what is the main theme? I think the main theme is that we're held to a standard of integrity and morality as we seek to represent this new way of life to our community. This is all about the church. This is all about pointing us that we've been loved by Christ, therefore we ought to love one another. And that should change everything that we do in the congregation and how we interact with people in our church and outside the church. That if love is pushing us to do these things, we ought to act different, shouldn't we? To exhibit a different kind of love for one another into the church. Why? I don't know if you realize this, but there are multiple ways to evangelize, primarily through our words, that we share the gospel with people. But, but we also evangelize through how we live. We point people to Christ through our actions, through, through how we interact with those in the community. We're pointing people to Christ. And we do this so that the world can see that we're different, that we've been changed, that we've been given a new way to live. You can read through this entire book, and the church would have read this, and it takes about an hour to read uh, from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 16. And you'll see that the church in Corinth had problems that we don't often deal with. But what you'll see is a church that is growing. How do I know they're growing? One, because there's problems and people are trying to deal with them. But two, we see that the problems are coming into the church, meaning that people were coming to know Christ and being brought into the church and they're bringing their baggage with them, just like we brought our baggage with us when we came here. All of us do. People from Judaism, people from paganism, various other backgrounds were coming into the strange group that worshipped a guy who had just died. 2,000 years have passed. And I think, reading through this, that I'm grateful that there are some problems that we don't deal with anymore, but I think we've lost something that the church in Corinth had had. And I think we've lost the newness of our faith. I, I think that the church in Corinth, they were predominantly new Christians, that Jesus had just died about two decades before. And so they're still working through things, but there's this excitement, there's this newness they're begging Paul, come, help us. We need help. It's been said that churches grow during times of persecution. And churches decline during times of safety. It's the only way we can explain why churches have grown in China so much, right? Years and years of persecution. And when the heavy hand of government says you can't do this, people are drawn to those who are risking their lives to go do that very thing. Yes, in the United States, people are still attending church every Sunday, but here's the question. Do we know God more? Can we answer those questions that the world throws at us? Do we understand how law and grace are an example of the love that God has for us? See, the early church was fighting about some important doctrines and practices. Absolutely, they were important. They were not first tier, but they were still important. And I keep asking, have we really changed that much? This is why I think seeing how Paul opened and closed his letters is essential. Two things stand out to me when I think about the character of God. And this is a kind of the, the overarching idea of scripture I see as holiness. 
that God is perfect and just, that God can do no wrong, that everything that God does is correct and true and good, and that he cannot stand sin. And so sin must be destroyed. The other aspect of God's character that I see is love. And what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians and what he's been doing throughout this entire book is doing his best to mirror the love of God, the love that Paul has received, and mirroring that to the church in Corinth. He gives correction because he loves them. He wants to spend time with them because he loves them. He tells them he loves them because he loves them. The love that Paul has for the church was not manufactured. It was not fake. This love can only come, if you think about this, this love can only come when people who are enemies are made friends. It can only come when something outside of us changes us. It comes when Jesus makes us new. Did the church in Corinth have problems? Absolutely they did. We've seen a lot of them. Looking at all of church history, some things got significantly worse. Some things were better. Some things stayed the same. But the words of Paul never changed. They're just as applicable to us as they were when they were first read. Everything that Paul wrote down in this letter was based on love for the local church. He knew that there would be problems that would come, but Paul called them to churches to, uh, uh, to, to act better, to be more mature, to grow up, sometimes harshly. So you say, well, why did he do this? Why, why was Paul so tough? Yeah, he bookends it with love, I get it, but man, he was tough in the middle. Because Paul knew that the church is the bride of Christ. And anything that stains the bride of Christ is a stain on the name of Christ. You say something bad about my wife, you say something bad about me. If someone says something bad about your spouse, they're saying something bad about you. And so if the church is stained, if the church is, is ruining their testimony, it's not just them that they're affecting themselves, they're affecting the name of Christ. And Paul knew this was a problem. But every day he was explaining to them, grow in your faith, grow into maturity. And so in application and closing, I'm, I'm not talking when I say the same thing, but let's grow in our maturity. I'm not just saying your quiet time, which is good. I'm not just saying the 25 hours a day you spend in prayer, which is good. I'm specifically talking about our local church family, this church. We grow or decline together. We suffer together. We celebrate together. Our faith is not an island, and we cannot forget that we have been united to Christ and to the church. This is why 1 Corinthians as a whole matters to us today. Because not only have we been saved from our sin and destruction by the grace of God, we have also been brought together to glorify the name of Jesus to the nations here in this local church. In other words, Pastor Paul had to correct the church because he loved Jesus and he loved them. This is the bookends that he's writing, all done in love. The beginning and end, everything sandwiched in between is done because of the love that he had for these people. So my challenge this morning is let our gatherings magnify the name of Jesus and let our gatherings reflect the love of God in our lives to the world outside because we are on display. Would you pray with me?